As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and while Max Verstappen led home teammate Sergio Perez for a Red Bull 1 2 in the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, it was disaster for Ferrari, with both Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz retiring. That gives Verstappen a 21-point lead in the Drivers' Championship and Red Bull a massive 80-point advantage in the Constructors. So is Red Bull now firm favourites and can Ferrari fix its problems? I'm Ed Straw and joining me to answer those questions and more are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Mark, how are you? A relatively sensible Azerbaijan Grand Prix by this circuit standard, you'd have to say? Yeah, not actually that chaotic, was it? Um, no safety cars, just a couple of VSCs. And... Um yeah, but the, the the tension was sort of taken out of it, wasn't it? Once the um, once the two Ferraris were out, so um, yeah, it ended up quite a routine sort of event, and uh, which is very much against the character of the race. Although the very first race was a bit like that, but that was, I think, after the Grand Prix drivers had just watched a truly terrifying Formula Two race, and um, that I think it, it probably calmed everybody down on that occasion. But um, yeah. Um, it had some intrigue. It, 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 there was um, some questions uh, that posed, and uh, we'll get into those. But yeah, well, take it as it comes. Yeah, F two drivers again this year troubled the barriers a bit, uh, a bit more often than the F one drivers, but not quite as bad as that first uh, that first weekend uh, here. Scott Baku, we're, we're sort of just away from the circuit. We can just see it in the distance, but it's it's a nice place to be, Baku, for a race, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it is an interesting city. It's a little bit difficult to, uh, to 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 get here, unfortunately. But once you're here, it is a it is interesting. And the good thing about where the the way they've laid out the the Formula One track is it it really does take in the sort of the heritage parts of the, the the city, old buildings and infrastructure, with obviously the way it's been modernised. So it's interesting. Um, I would always quite like this race. Um, it wasn't as um, dramatic. Uh, 
um, a Grand Prix as we've seen in, in previous years. Obviously, Ferrari would uh, would beg to differ on that score, but it had enough about it to be interesting, but it would have been a little bit... It would have just been a fascinating Grand Prix to watch play out had uh, Charles Leclerc's hopes not gone literally up in smoke. Yeah, absolutely. It was quite interestingly poised, and I'm sure Mark will get into that in a moment. So at the start of the race, Perez got ahead of Leclerc at turn one, led the early stages with Verstappen hassling Leclerc for second. So perhaps, Mark, you could pick up with your traditional look at how the race was won with Sainz retiring with that hydraulics problem, the resulting virtual safety car that gave Leclerc that chance to pit. So why did we see that split in strategies at the front and what happened from there? Yeah, it um, looked like Sergio um, had that first phase of the race nicely under control, although... Um, Below the surface, you listen to him talking to his engineers from quite early on. He was um, complaining about traction problems, and he was, he was discussing with his engineer what what to, um, to do in terms of diff settings and stuff like that. And that that communication didn't seem particularly clear, and the radio reception wasn't very good. That that wasn't helping, but also just the communication between those two guys just didn't seem that good and I think that maybe played its part and it 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 played its part in why Perez after the VSC um it really didn't have very much pace I think it was to do with the way the, the tires had been used in that first phase but the VSC for um Carlos Sainz's retirement out on the circuit um it came with uh Perez had just gone past the, um, the white line which denotes the pit entry lane on, on the track when his engineer you know shouted box box now it was too late he'd missed it so he by default was staying out Leclerc had already as he saw the VSC lights and he saw Perez going straight on he'd automatically moved into that lane even before his engineer was telling up the box. He'd already made that decision unilaterally, and it was a logical thing to do. Um, he was, you know, Perez had done one thing, so it made sense to do the other thing. Plus, he was having a hard time keeping Verstappen behind him. Verstappen was told to do the opposite to whatever Leclerc had done, so he stayed out, same as Perez. So the two Red Bulls had stayed out, albeit for different reasons. Um, and then, yeah, the the 10 second saving that you get by doing um, a VSC stop rather than a, a full racing speed stop. Um, that brought uh, Leclerc back into the lead once the Red Bulls had stopped later on and it, you know, with the race full racing speed. So he'd made up the time enough to get into the lead, but with a, a hell of a lot of laps still to do for that set of tyres. It was lap nine when he came in and a 61-lap race. The hards were fully capable of doing that, but it, it it's the important thing was how his hard tires would compare to their hard tires, which were so much newer, and would he be able to keep both Red Bulls behind him on tires that were much older? We didn't get to find out. Um, I think looking at the performance of Perez and Verstappen after the uh, the VSC. He, he would maybe have been able to deal with Perez, whether he could have kept Max behind him. He did seem to have terrific pace. And, um, I'm not too sure. But yeah, it would have been nice to find out uh, rather than trying to just theorize about what what if. But um, yeah, Ferrari do really seem to have um, 
a more than significant reliability problem, don't they? <laughs> yes, well, we'll get into that in some detail in a bit. But it, it was interesting to see once Verstappen was ahead of Perez, just how quickly he pulled away from uh, his teammate. What did you make of that pace difference? Obviously, you touched on perhaps some of the tyre troubles he was having, but Perez looked quicker on the previous days. But then in the race, Verstappen's pace was on a different level. Yeah, I think Perez had cooked his tyres. I think he'd cooked his rear tyres. Every, there's every indication of that. Um, and Max, whether through just being constrained to Leclerc's pace early on, you know, when you're on high fuel tanks, which is when the tyres are at their most vulnerable, but also with a very skinny winged car, it's, 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 you know, it's something that you traditionally do have to look after the rears here. It's a rear limited track. And although Ferrari was running its low downforce wing for the first time, it was still a bigger wing than that on the Red Bull. So I think the Red Bull was a little bit more susceptible to maybe abusing the rears if you didn't control it very carefully. And I think maybe Perez let that get away from him. He's usually fantastically good on the tyres in the way that he, he can feel, um, in, in terms of his technique and how he doesn't place too much stress on the tyres. But I think it was more a case of his management, uh, in, in this case, in a car which, with that wing setting and on this track, maybe need a little bit more management than he realised. Yeah, I should say that that question I stole from the Race Members Club because I meant to say that was a question from Danny Janowski from the Race Members Club. As always, we let our members send in questions for our post-race podcast. Head to the race website and click on Join the Race and you can find out more about the Race Members Club. There's extra content and other opportunities attached there. But Scott, gut feeling on what might have happened had the race played out between Ferrari and Red Bull? It did look like, especially in the first stint, that Verstappen just had had the edge. Perez had built that two-second buffer to Leclerc, but didn't look like he was getting away. Mark was explaining the reasons for that with um, with the, the the rear tires. Verstappen just looked a little bit more in control of it. So it would have been very interesting to see whether the, how Verstappen would have cut into that gap for Leclerc, how it would have then played out afterwards, what other um, elements of the race would have then factored into it, and and what each team did on strategy so there, there are way too many what ifs but I, I just I do wish we could have seen it play out because it would have been the the first real straight fight between them between Verstappen and Leclerc that we've seen for well, Miami was the last one but they, they didn't really fight in that race once Verstappen had cleared Leclerc after the first few laps he had the race won it ended up becoming a slightly tense conclusion but it, it, what do you know? What I mean, it wasn't really that 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 same kind of fight that we saw in the first couple of races. Um, the fact that they were on such different strategies because of the divergence um, and the early pit stop that won Leclerc the uh, track position in the end meant that maybe it wouldn't have ended up being a straight fight. But I'd just love to have had chance to see it play out. Yeah, absolutely. A seven and a nine lap offset in terms of that that second stop timing for Perez and Verstappen versus Leclerc. But as we saw, other drivers did very easily get to the end of the race on the hards, having changed on on lap nine. Pierre Gasly, notable among those, and Sebastian Vettel. So certainly it would have been doable, but it was all about that relative pace. So yeah, very, very difficult to be sure. But you'd have to say, Mark, a big day in the championship for Red Bull. This gives them a huge Constructors' Championship lead. They're not that far off two races worth in terms of one-two finishes and a healthy lead for Verstappen. It wasn't that long ago. He was a, a chunk behind and we were wondering if reliability was going to undermine Red Bull. So if you're Red Bull, you're feeling pretty happy with this, aren't you? Yeah, that's I mean that's two mechanical 
retirements and three races for Leclerc, which um, we were saying about Verstappen earlier in the season in Bahrain and Australia, weren't we? But um, I, th- I think um, that just the, the the frequency of these problems across all of the Ferrari power units, including the customer engine, is is the worrying thing. You know, you you can have like Verstappen had earlier in the season, you know, a couple of random things that you just have caught you out and you weren't quite on top of and which you, you then fix and um, which might or might not be costly in the end. But when, I don't know, this this feels a little bit more worrying. This feels a bit more like uh, an underlying fundamental problem given that it's, um, especially, you know, the, it, it seems to be there in the uh, customer cars as well. Well, Scott, you've been all over Ferrari's reliability problems even before the race this weekend. You've been talking to people about it. 80% of the cars that retired from the race were Ferrari engined, including, of course, the two works cars. We should say Joe Guan Yu was not a power unit related problem. It was a cooling issue that Chevy Pujolar did say was a Sauber related problem rather than a Ferrari problem, but even so, quite concerning. So what do we know about Ferrari's problems? Well, you we know, obviously, that Leclerc and Sainz had different problems unrelated problems in, in the race hydraulics versus something power unit related it was a good old-fashioned combustion engine uh, smoky failure but i've seen that in the past get sometimes explained away as you know it's something in the ers that fails and then triggers something failing in the in the v6 so hard to say exactly what went wrong for for leclerc ferrari either doesn't have an initial clue or just doesn't want to let on at this stage, we remember we still don't actually know the exact cause of Leclerc's uh, Spain failure, do we? We just know that it it, it detonated the MGUH and, and, and the turbo. They've, they've never actually said exactly what that was. I think they're being very secretive. Um, you're right. I was asking Ferrari and their customer teams earlier in the weekend about a spate of reliability problems because yeah, there was this Leclerc problem in Spain, but in Monaco there were three MGUK failures across the two customer teams: uh, two at Haas, one at Alfa Romeo. And uh, we know that Kevin Magnussen had a power unit issue in this race in Azerbaijan as well, having only just taken a new MG UK at the start of the weekend because of his Monaco failure. Um, Leclerc's had a failure here. So it's it's really difficult to see that evidence in front of you and just dare to suggest it's coincidence. <laughs> it just, just clearly isn't. Um, it, it is tempting to say that there is an MG UK issue there something within the ERS partly because we know that the second power unit was introduced in Miami there was suggestions that there was a MGK specification change there not for performance reasons who knows what it was for whether it was to to save weight improve reliability if, if they knew there was a known reliability issue maybe it was for that but it's I don't think it's a coincidence that all of these problems on the Ferrari side and the customer side have come in since the second power units have been introduced. Now, whether that means there has been a specification change that has actually made reliability worse rather than better, or whether it's a faulty batch of components, that that we, that has happened before. There have been stories of that before. Um, Ferrari's investigations will have to unearth this effectively but what is really really telling at the moment is they don't have a full grasp of it and because they don't have a full grasp of it they obviously don't have a solution but whatever solution is on the is to be found Mattia Bonotto told me earlier in the weekend when I asked that it's not a short-term fix anyway and this was before the failures that they had in in the race and it's just so concerning for Ferrari because they they had these issues before 
they identified that they probably didn't have a short-term fix for the issues they'd already had, but they were they seemed quite confident that whatever protocols they'd put in place, like you know, temporary countermeasures or management or whatever, they were pretty sure that they were guaranteeing themselves short-term reliability while they worked on addressing this problem. But they clearly didn't guarantee it because they've then had a another batch of issues here. Um, it's I don't know if they're all all related or not. If they and I don't know what's better for Ferrari. <laughs> is it better for them to, to, to all these be related or for them to have lots of different ones? Because if they have lots of different ones, maybe that implies that there isn't one massive fundamental design flaw somewhere in the system. Really hard to say. It's a very confusing situation for them to be in, especially after they started the season so positively. No reliability issues pretty much across a very, very different internal combustion engine design. So Ferrari is in all sorts of trouble with this. And if they don't get a grasp on it quickly... And who's to say they will, considering they they obviously felt they were in a better place than they actually were coming into this weekend. Their title season, their title challenge is going to completely implode. It is already, you know, it's not in tatters at the moment, but it has taken a big blow this weekend and reliability could completely undermine the whole thing. And of course, several things we should note on that that means this problem can compound is that you can make changes with permission for reliability reasons to the spec, but you can't then apply that to any power units you've already introduced. So Ferrari's now trying to work out how it'll play its deployment of power units over the rest of the season. They may have to bring in some early, but if you do that before you've got your countermeasures, if it's a reliability fix, you can't then retrofit it to that engine. So that there's a lot of knock-on problems that are created for them. And they don't know exactly how they're going to play it from here. They'll obviously put together a strategy for the power unit usage in the coming days so that when they go to Canada, they know exactly. But... Bonotto said that whether that means um, identifying a short-term countermeasure or a, a proper short-term fix, as in a, a fix that works properly in the short term, if they can't do that, then are they going to need to limit the mileage of the power units to protect them? Are they going to need to run a lower engine mode and, and reduce performance in the coming races to, to to protect themselves against whatever they're vulnerable to, whatever the fragility is? Um, and obviously... We knew Leclerc was pretty much guaranteed a grid penalty later in the year anyway because of that MGUH and turbo change that he had to have after Spain. But now, who who knows what what he's heading for now, whether he's heading for multiple grid penalties or, or, or they can somehow sort of just about manage in a way where they only sacrifice one, maybe two races later in the year. But it's a very, very bad position to for Ferrari to be in. And it, I, I, don't, I don't see a way out of it for them. In, in the short term. So I, I think this is going to be a serious challenge for them to overcome. And it's going to take a while to see the full implications of this in terms of how it affects the championship fight. No wonder Charles Leclerc was pretty miserable after the race. He's had four consecutive polls and I think he's had a second and a fourth place and two DNFs in that uh, that run. So terrible. Mark, a question for you from the Race Members Club member, Henri Eiler, who says... Do you think that the FIA will change the allowance for engine components to avoid an embarrassment of races majorly affected by engine penalties later in the year? I'm sure Ferrari would like the idea of this. No, I don't think so. I think that would be unfair um, to those who've got the job done. Um, and I, no, it's not It's not something that uh, I think is being seriously considered. Um, so, yeah, we could well see uh, a big, a big sort of scattering of uh, engine-related pa- um, Grid penalties um, later in the season, I think. And of course, you could tie some of this to the fact the engine freeze kicks in this year. Obviously, a bunch of components already homologated as of March the 1st. A few of the ERS components 
not till September the 1st, but you can only make one spec change anyway uh, this year of those. So there is a little bit of an incentive to be a little bit aggressive with your performance design for those because that's locked in because you can apply reliability. So let's say somebody says, oh, we're going to have loads of engine penalties, so perhaps we should let them off. Others will say, well, they were aggressive with it. They're paying the price. We were a bit more sensible. We should benefit from that. So it's it's all cost-benefit, risk-reward for them. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I think Marinello would be full of people who love that idea. But, yeah, I can't see anything happening with that. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, Mark, let's move on to Mercedes. More bouncing struggles. Third and fourth places for Russell and Hamilton. It was a decent weekend, but once again, a very distant third fastest. It's a little bit untidy in the in qualifying in terms of pace, but on race pace, clearly the, the third best. But what happened to all that Spain optimism just a few weeks ago? We'll only see it on fast aero circuits, on smooth tracks, I think, um, because there's a separate problem um, that cured pretty much cured the aero problem of Barcelona. Um, and that cure is obviously still valid, but uh, the the mechanical problem, the the ride problem, um, which afflicts it's on on slow corners and you know triggers that bouncing that you that you saw was pretty extreme. Um, yeah, it's it, disastrous at Monaco, disastrous here. It'll be disastrous in Montreal. Um, and we'll probably be looking at a, a Barcelona type performance at Silverstone. That's the the logical. Um, you know the 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 logical conclusion of of, of uh, what we know so far. They might enjoy Paul Ricard as well. That's another one that's pretty pretty smooth. But but they've got to they've got to sort the problem themselves. One quick question on the Mercedes strategy from Simon T for you, Mark. He asks: Were Mercedes right to double stack, or would Hamilton's race have been better had he not pitted? What was his pace in free air compared to Russell? Of course, they made both their stops at, at the same time. Uh, yeah, I don't think it would have made that much difference because it, it didn't look as though Hamilton had a pace advantage over Russell here. Um, if anything, the, the opposite. Uh, there are running different um, aero configurations. Um, Hamilton's was described as an experimental setup, um, the, the way that they were running the floor, and it seemed to make the um, the the bouncing worse. Uh, and you'll you'll have seen him uh, struggling to get out of the car at the end. Yeah, they're getting spikes of up to 5 or 6G from from those impacts. George Russell and Lewis Hamilton, in the case of Mercedes, very uncomfortable ride. Scott, we've got a couple of questions from the Race Members Club here for you on this topic. The first is from Ben Johnson, who says, eight races into the new ground effect here and porpoising still plagues most teams. Is there anything F1 can do to tweak future regulations to fix it? The second question is from Thomas Turrell Croft, who asks, is it time for the FI to start monitoring car oscillations for the sake of their own health, should Lewis Hamilton and George Russell have been shown the black and orange flag? Now, there's there's a lot going on behind the scenes and in terms of public utterances related to all this, isn't there? So lots for you to get into. Yeah, um, the first thing I would say with Ben's question is, I, I don't know about the two of you, but I think it's quite important to dis- make the distinction between porpoising just on its own as a phenomenon 
and just the actual overall ride quality of the the, the 2022 cars because it, it's it's about more than porpoising it's about the stiffness of the cars um it's about how low they have to run to the ground so when you're it, like, if you're not porpoising you actually get uh, part of this problem even worse because if you're not porpoising you doesn't you d- you're not worried about running the the car ultra ultra low which means you're just smashing into the track surface even more because the car's so low to the ground so that that to me is an important distinction because uh, as we've discussed with mercedes getting on top of the porpoising to a degree in spain you cure or mostly cure one side of it the aerodynamic side but then there's still very much a, a, a an obvious problem problem here so, so it is it is more than that i just know that porpoising because it's been su- it's been the buzzword hasn't it since pre-season testing that is just the sort of default way so i've started just more referring it to it as bouncing because that just seems that's that seems to be a better catch-all well, well that word. distinction was being drawn even during testing and in short basically yeah, the porpoising it's an aero trigger isn't it it's with a certain motion for porpoising and an aero course but yeah it's, it's important to, to make a differentiation there yeah so basically what we what we've got now is this is a situation where obviously it came. I think it, the reason it was the reason it exploded in Baku as a talking point is because it's been so aggressive here and it's afflicted so many teams and drivers in such an aggressive way because of the speeds uh, and the bumpiness of the track that it, it's just naturally been more more of a topic. It's like several drivers. Hamilton was the big example. He was walking so gingerly after the race, and he said that. That was the most painful and hard physical race he's ever done. And there were points in it where he wasn't sure he'd make it to the finish. He, there were times through the high-speed sweeps with the, the bouncing was so bad he thought he was going to crash. Yes, that's the most dramatic that we've heard someone be afterwards. And, and he seemed to genuinely suffer from it physically. But others did as well. Daniel Ricciardo, Kevin Magnussen, Esteban Ocon, Carlos Sainz, George Russell. Several drivers, not just the ones driving Mercedes, have complained uh, about this. But... Behind the scenes, and this is probably going to answer the second part of Ben's question and Thomas's question, is there there are movements to to, to get this addressed in in some way. There were conversations last year about changing the rules in some way once it became clear how low the cars were going to run and that porpoising or bouncing would, would be an issue, but that was rejected. But now that we've actually seen the evidence of it, Lots of drivers are lobbying their teams and the FIA to actually be supportive of this. And now they're starting to say to the FIA, stop listening to the teams and listen to us because we're driving these cars. We It's our bodies that are suffering from this. And this isn't sustainable for the, the entire duration of this rule set. These cars are going to be around until 2026, basically. Um, if this entire philosophy stays exactly the same, it's going to be pretty brutal um, on, on the drivers. So basically, they're starting to look at right what ways can... Can we address this? It sounds like the FAA is genuinely open to it. So far, teams are getting in the way of it. I understand that there's going to be competitive interest on either side. The teams that are on top of it and don't suffer so badly and they don't have drivers complaining are going to be saying, oh, these these other teams are just using this as an excuse to have the rules changed so that it makes life easier for them because they can't get on top of an engineering challenge. The other teams are saying, no, there's no competitive thing here. It's just purely an interest in safety and you're hurting drivers and compromising their well-being in the interest of protecting your competitive advantage because you think that you're protecting your competitive advantage so it is a bit messy behind the scenes i think we are going to get to a point where something is changed within the rules i don't know exactly what that will be i doubt it would be in season especially because you've got ferrari and red bull fighting for the championship and they're both on different sides of the debate and i just don't think the fia would make a change that does potentially make something you know 
make Ferrari take a step forward because they've got some bouncing and ride quality under control. So I think we're looking at a bit more of a longer term fix. Yeah, it's interesting. George saying that um, he couldn't actually read his pit wall. The bouncing was so bad. You know, so that gives you an idea that you, you know, as you're going past your pit, you can't actually read what's said on the board. Yeah, well, he said earlier in the weekend as well, didn't he, that he was struggling to spot breaking points um, at the end of the start-finish straight because obviously at that point, highest speed, highest uh, bouncing frequency. And he just said it's a matter of time now before we have a major crash. He, think, he called it a recipe for disaster. And his words carry weight. He's a Grand Prix Drivers Association director. So this is more than just a Mercedes driver moaning about having an uncomfortable car to, to drive. I know that a lot of people won't see it that way, but, but it is more than that. Well, Christian Horner was one of those who wasn't having it that way. He said it would be unfair. Shock. (laughs) Where could this have come from? Exactly. It'd be unfair if there was a change. He said that if he was in the position Mercedes was, he'd be telling his drivers to complain as much as they possibly can about it. It is a difficult question, though, philosophically, because fundamentally it's incumbent on the teams to run the cars in a way that the drivers can can tolerate, etc. It's exactly the same as you don't design a car with parts that shake themselves to pieces or whatever under under the load etc so part of it is the teams have to be responsible but at the same time if it's fundamentally the way the rules are the way the ride height range is allowed etc if there is a serious problem there it needs to be looked at and the clincher for me is is the medical concerns i think there needs to be a good look at this see what damage it's doing to drivers backs is there any potential for you know, neurological damage from constantly being shaken. We've seen in other sports this has become a serious problem. So I think Formula One should be getting ahead of this. They need to be looking at this very significantly. If there's a medical, a proper medical problem, not just general bit of wear and tear, all sports people have that, but, you know, serious long-term problems to back or to other parts of the body or to your brain, then absolutely that means something has to be done. There was a great uh, explanation of sort of what the sensation is like from Daniel Ricciardo after the race. He said it's, he likened it to being dribbled like a basketball, like just lots and lots of rapid compressions, basically. And he said, and he said it's such an unnatural sensation in the car because you're obviously uncomfortable as it is and you're moving around and it's just shaking you up and down. And I've heard that one or two drivers... I won't say who, it's not the Mercedes drivers, but I won't say who it is just to protect them, um, but who have said that they've had sort of, they've come away afterwards and their physios have looked at them and identified, you know, minor nerve damage. And I don't mean nerve damage as in, you know, like permanent nerve damage or anything like dramatic, but in 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 a basic sense, dam- it's aggravated the nerves in, in, in their back. And you, anyone who's woken up on the wrong side of the bed knows how painful it is if you trap a nerve. Imagine how easy it is to pinch one if you're sat uncomfortably in a racing car, bouncing up and down, moving around at high speed. I can totally imagine that that it is just an awfully uncomfortable experience. Well, I've got extra sympathy this weekend because I've been hobbling around with back trouble for most of uh, most of this week, although it's uh, it's much, much better today, which is useful. So, yeah, it needs to, it needs to be considered. Yeah, I mean, the point that Horner makes is, is a valid one. He said, you know... Why? Why should we be penalised? We've we've got you know got on top of the problem, and others haven't. Then they're not obliged to run their cars so low that it triggers the bouncing. They could they could just surrender some performance and and, and you know not put their drivers at at that peril. Um, but it's it's racing, and you know that if there's lap time there to be had, they're going to take it. Um, and it, that's just the nature of the sport. So you have to, in a way, um protect them from themselves when, when there's a, 
a, a competitive element. Yeah, and just to, to reiterate, I think the key thing is the medical side of things. There's a duty of care towards drivers. We don't want these guys in 30 years' time not to be able to walk, or even, even less. So it needs to be looked at very, very seriously. I think that becomes the overwhelming argument. And so need some medical commission research into that as well. And yeah, the politics and the competitiveness of teams needs to play second fiddle to that if that is a serious problem. But if it's not and it's sustainable, then that slightly changes debate. So watch this space on that. And Mark, there is another members club question, a slightly different tack on this from Tom Benstead. He says, after watching Hamilton struggle to get out of the car post-race, could or should there be any investigations to whether the Mercedes car is safe? What immediately came to mind is the regulation regarding how quickly the driver can get out of the car. If the car is causing the driver enough discomfort to slow their exit from the car, could or should the FIA be looking into this as a safety concern? Heaven forbid a driver in that situation get into a position in the late stage of a race where a fast evacuation from the cockpit is necessary. Well, it doesn't sound like a question. It sounds just like an opinion. So, um, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, it, it's, yeah. a, it's a valid point, though. Yeah. But because for, for all the complaining yeah. that, say, the Mercedes drivers are doing, the FIA could say to them, well, hang on a minute. Mm-hmm. Other teams aren't complaining so much. Your drivers are publicly saying they've got a problem. It's not even necessarily the... Um, the, the 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 getting out of the car quickly because Hamilton got out of the car very leisurely at the end in part firm. I'm sure he'd do it a lot quicker if he was in a, an unpleasant situation in the wall or the, uh, etc. But that there is a there is a case for for what Tom's suggesting there that it could be just made Mercedes problem and backfire. Yeah, but as you say, as I said before, you could um, you could say, well, um, surrender surrender some ride height and lose a load of downforce and make the car more comfortable to drive and if it's a second a lap slow it's a second a lap slower but that's not really the spirit of going motor racing isn't it that's not how it works yeah very very true but this is going to run and run so stay tuned to the race.com and don't forget the hypheners will be following that story as it evolves now scott ferrari may have had a disaster but as we turn our attention briefly to grid rival the fancy motorsport game the race has its own league in I probably managed to do even more catastrophically than Ferrari because I managed to miss the deadline, which was inexcusable, leaving me with a two-driver team of Pierre Gasly and Fernando Alonso. Alva, you should also, you should caveat that, uh, not caveat that, but you should mention that. How many drivers are you meant to have it? Meant to have five drivers and a car. So just two drivers. I was very confident in Pierre Gasly and Fernando Alonso. Not without reason. They both did okay, actually. 270 points across those two was pretty good considering how light I was. But if you know if you did that on a pro rata basis, that, that's not too bad. So I hope, Scott, that means an easy win for you this week in our, our personal battle. Uh, yeah, I did uh, I did beat you handsomely, but I did make my own mistake. I forgot to nominate a talent driver. I thought I had. Um, I thought I'd put Alonso in. So I'm slightly surprised as to how I managed to forget to do that. Unfortunately, that's proven quite costly because I would have got another uh, 150 points, which would have put me... In a very in the very respectable nine hundreds, um, so unfortunately I've missed out there. But you know, I, I I'd overhauled my team this week. I'd brought in Verstappen and 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 Hamilton, um, who obviously came up with the goods, and I'd jettisoned my Ferrari assets, which I wasn't feeling too good about after qualifying. But come uh, about lap twenty one, I was feeling pretty good. <laughs> well, very well played. I have to say though, Mark, mocking you the other week for your bad advice. But next time I ask you, you can just say, well, just remember to pick all your drivers in a car and, and and I'm going to do better. Absolutely. Yeah. I I, I don't, don't need to say any more do I. 
<laughs> well, in the world of people doing very, very well, we do have a new leader in the Races League. Well done to Nathard Six, who this week had a team of Alonso, Perez, Russell, Hamilton and Magnussen, plus Red Bull. A massive total of 1,058 points this week and 8,125 in total. Mightily impressive and shows what you can do if you've got a, a full roster. Grid Rival still open for sign up, so download the Grid Rival app or visit the website to get involved. The link is in the episode description for this podcast. Mark, let's talk quickly about Alpha Tari. Strong weekend for them. Pierre Gasly came home fourth. One of the two drivers, the other being Sebastian Vettel, who made that stop under the early virtual safety car on lap nine, then did run to the end, didn't take an extra stop when the opportunity arose. Gasly was caught and passed by Hamilton, who was behind him and made a stop under the VSC, the second VSC, that is. Did Alfatari in any way miss a trick here, or was he going to be beaten by Hamilton either way, given the pace difference? Um, I think they didn't have any suitable tyres left, so it was the only logical thing they could do to try and just to just stay out there and, and try and hold Hamilton off. Um, but yeah, the, the car works quite well on those sort of corners, and Pierre, as usual, when given the opportunity, qualified it very well. And yeah, I think I probably maximised the result with that fifth place, I think. And Sonoda very unlucky to get that um, that wing flap problem, uh, which uh, forced him to make the extra pit stop and <laughs> get the get the gaffer tape out. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Sonoda, Scott. He's, he was massively unlucky. He would have had sixth place and then had that curious problem with the DRS that Mark just referenced. But we should say Sonoda's having a pretty tidy season, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Um, he's driving. He's driving very well. He's also doing a very good job or a much better job, certainly, than last year of uh, piecing together everything when it gets into qualifying. And obviously, Alfatari have had a bit of a disappointing season, so sometimes that hasn't really been worth much. But if you look at his season, especially in comparison to Gasly, now that that we've had a couple of races, the car has has had more pure performance, Gasly's raising the bar again. Obviously, Monaco was a disappointment, but he, he was very good here. But... I don't feel like he's leaving Sonoda behind. It does feel like Sonoda has sort of kicked on from that solid end to to last season and that sort of he's taken that confidence that he's spent so long rebuilding and he is just he's just working very well. You can sort of see it sometimes in some of the moves he he makes he's very happy with uh, with his dive down the inside was it Ocon he uh, he passed I think it was um that then re- resulted in a in a in a shout over the radio and a little bit of uh, adulation from from his team so he's he's driving with a lot of confidence he was very frustrated with that issue uh after the race he sort of felt like he, he basically said like I I really hope that was a safety concern or there was a serious problem with that otherwise I would rather have just been left out to to take the risk so um he knows what he lost but I think he was still quite happy with his performance and and rightly so yeah, it's a really difficult one to judge that. I must admit, when I saw it, I thought that's going to have to be ordered into the pits to be to be dealt with. But it may very, very well be that it would have been fine if they just said, don't use the DRS. He had been told to stop using the DRS uh, before he, he, he came in. It might well have been fine, but you can't really take chances. So, yeah, I wasn't totally convinced by the, the fix, but good old bit of tape can uh, do wonders in a, in, in a Formula 1 car. So a, sh- a shame for Sonoda. Yeah, sixth place would have been his, which... Just again for AlphaTauri, not quite maximising the results, but at least a decent number of points uh, this time. But the man who did finish six was Sebastian Vettel. Scott, he was pretty quick all weekend in that recently upgraded Aston Martin. What did you make of his drive? Yeah, very good. Apart from obviously the moment he skated down the um, escape road. Um, that's a bit of a weird one. 
it was I, it looked like he'd got the move done and then still braked a little bit too late and then just carried way too much speed into the corner and he sort of like he sort of half-heartedly initially made an attempt to go into the corner and then went nope <laughs> dived down the escape road did a lovely little uh, boot of the throttle to to spin the car around I thought he was quite lucky to get away with his um, his rejoin it was questionable that Sonoda shouldn't be having to do anything there to 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 avoid hitting a car re- rejoining I don't I don't think because because Vettel had gone completely off the track I think it's his duty there to to, to filter back in but otherwise I thought it was another very good uh, result it's actually the second race in a row that Vettel has ended up going down on the skate road but otherwise piecing together a very good drive that earns him a, a strong result at the end because he did basically exactly the same thing in Monaco yeah, I don't think it cost him in the end, actually. He let Hamilton and Sonoda pass when he did that, but Hamilton, he probably wasn't going to beat anyway, and Sonoda dropped back when he made that extra pit stop. So I have to say, Mark, Vettel, you'd asked me a few months ago, I'd say, oh, it looks like he might be losing interest, might be heading towards retirement. It's still in the balance, but Aston Martin's upturn in form, he's been driving pretty well, pretty consistently well, actually, uh, of late. So that kind of Vettel narrative's shifting a bit, isn't it? It is a little bit, yeah. And I'm sure he's just um, seeing the uh, the new car and figuring this might have some potential, and suddenly he's interested again. So, yeah, let's let's see how he's um, how he's feeling about it all at the end of the season. But uh, yeah, he's 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 certainly putting in some pretty good performances at the moment. Yeah, and good to have him around, and good to see him performing at his best. He's always pretty handy around Baku. He's had some great results here in recent years and yeah a nice little run of results he's starting to piece together looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events we've got the spot our partner StubHub has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years providing a 100 guarantee with every order from a worldwide selection of live events the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence StubHub an official partner of The Athletic. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, And that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and Gold Fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the Commuter Collection and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The Commuter Collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort.
Let's talk about McLaren, Mark. Eighth and ninth for Daniel Ricciardo and Lando Norris. Do you think they played the team orders game right here in the first stint? Ricciardo was told to stay behind Norris and then the reverse happened in the second. Could they have done anything quicker race time there if they, they played it a bit differently? In terms of the theoretical race time, probably yes, because it turned out that the hard was actually a faster tyre than a medium. But um, they, they would have still come up against the same blockage, which is that rocket ship down the straights, Alpine ahead of them, and neither one of them could get past that. And it really wouldn't matter what strategy you were on. If you, if you had to get past that Alpine to make your strategy work, it wasn't going to work. So um, they were both sort of held to the same sort of false ceiling, really, by the prodigious straight line speed of that Alpine. Yeah, Fernando Alonso doing a good job on his way to seventh. Obviously, he got a little bit of criticism from Alex Albon in, in qualifying for uh, for playing games, etc., with uh, being in the way and then going up the escape road and not offering a, a toe as well. But, you know, that's uh, all's fair in love, war and qualifying, whatever the, whatever the saying goes. But yeah, Alonso, uh, a strong performance certainly for, uh, for him there. But yeah, McLaren, Daniel Ricciardo, Scott, Decent weekend for him. He needed something like this, didn't he? Yeah, he's quite happy. Not with the end result. Obviously, it's not. It's still, it's not where he wants to be or where the team want to be. But I just think having that strong weekend and and having a drive, where, having a having a weekend in which he said he felt he understood from the beginning why it was working better. He felt they came here with quite a clear plan of attack and expectation in terms of what to do after digging into the data from Monaco, where he really struggled. So I think he was very, very encouraged that he was able to then realise that with decent performance. Um, again, sort of just a bit behind Norris. but And Ricardo said that's not where he wants to be, but he he was happy with where he was relative to Norris in qualifying. And then obviously he did a decent job um, in, in in the race as well. Just for, for what it's worth, um, I got the massive impression from Ricardo after the race when he was asked about it, that he didn't buy, the, buy what Alonso was doing in qualifying at all. Um, he had a massive smile on his face when he was talking about it. And he asked, as he said, because he said, come on, you guys have been in Formula One long enough now. What do you really think happened? I suggested that whether when I think Alon- that whether I think Fernando's done something on purpose or not, I judge it based on ex- just how emphatic his uh, insistence is that he did nothing wrong. And he was at 100% emphatic, I did nothing wrong here, which means he was probably playing games. Yeah, there were there were a number of fellow drivers who were suspicious. There were a number of ex Formula One drivers hanging around who were equally suspicious, shall we say, of that. But that's Fernando Alonso. He makes the most of every single opportunity. Should we quickly talk about Alfa Romeo? Scott Valtteri Bottas finished eleventh. Now he had the assistance of the well-timed virtual safety car. Some cars retired ahead. Sonoda dropped behind him, and still he couldn't get in the points. So he's surprised to see them struggling so much yeah and so were they this is like the, this was their or his worst performance of the season so far uh, just no, nothing in terms of the, the 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 pace of the car was nowhere near where he expected it to be but even within the team he was nowhere near joe in in the race especially at the end he was really really struggling he was at a bit of a he was at a, a loss to, to 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 explain it maybe you can do a, a slightly better job ed yeah, well, I don't know the exact problem, but yeah, certainly he spoke to him after the race and he just said that there was, there was clearly a problem. In fact, Chevy Pujolar, the head of engineering, said, yeah, there was a problem. So the team agrees there. They're going to take a very, very close look at the car. It's a little bit awkward because they've got to go straight to Canada. So time is short. There isn't time to take 
the car and, and study it in great detail in, in Hinville as they ideally like to do. So Pujolar just said they're going to change as much as they can and see what happens on uh, on Friday. Obviously, there's some things you can do to, to test and check parts in the in the interim. So they're just going to go over that car with a fine-tooth comb. But just Bottas wasn't quick. I think the straight line speed wasn't wasn't good. So, yeah, he, he was just nowhere. He said he just couldn't get anywhere near Joe on pace. They'd made a lot of changes from Friday to Saturday, hadn't they? Because they had new parts um, at this race that they were putting on and Bottas seemed to suggest that, oh, maybe that had something to do with it. And not necessarily because the new parts didn't work, but I guess maybe something, they, maybe they got something wrong, basically, in, in, in how they actually ran the car. Or It was hard to know exactly what he was hinting at, but he basically did draw a direct direct connection to the fact that, okay, it weren't as quick as they wanted to be on Friday, but then they should have, they did things for Saturday that should have had uh, an effect that, they then encountered the complete opposite when the car ran on track on, on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, I think a lot of that was, although they were they were the newer parts, it, it was mainly down to the stock of the upgraded stuff they didn't have a huge amount of. So it wasn't like lots of brand new into the unknown parts went into his car. In fact, Pujolar said that the spec of Bottas and Joe was identical in terms of the car configuration. Actually, the setup was near identical and Joe was just, uh, just a lot quicker. So... Yeah, certainly I think they would have detected the problem more quickly, perhaps, if, if Bottas had been running a normal spec. But I think they thought the problems they encountered on Friday would end up being uh, uh, would end up being eliminated by uh, by the changes they made overnight. I have to say, Joe did a good job. He outqualified Bottas, albeit with the help of a toe and the caveat of Bottas' problems. And actually, he was right in the mix for a, a points finish, the way, he was, uh, the way he was driving. And he made that lap nine pit stop under the VSC as well, was going to the end on... The hard, so unfortunate for him that he had a, a problem. It was a cooling problem, Sauber-related, as mentioned earlier, that put him out. It's not a Ferrari issue. Let's talk about Haas quickly, Mark. Another disappointing weekend for them with both cars out in Q1. Then Magnussen retired, but the car was actually really quick, wasn't it? Well, relatively quick by midfield standards, let's say. Yeah, I mean, it was on pace. It was in the middle of the park. It was, um, you conceivably would have um, been... 10th place, he'd got uh, demoted at the start, just the way it played out. He, he, he Stroll and Albon got, got past him, but he, he picked them back off again, and he made he made really good progress early in the race, put put good passes on people, and um, was probably um, you know in 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 a, in a fight with Ocon for the um, the, the final point. Yeah, in quite a good uh, position. Yeah, he's just behind Ocon, who of course hadn't stopped when he when he retired. So uh, yeah. I think Magnussen uh, did a good job of trying to salvage something there. Shame he couldn't get to the uh, get to the finish. We'll finish off with a bit of a batch of final questions from members of the race members club. We'll go with you, Mark, for the first one. A question from Mike Meredith. Conspiracy time. Did it look to you as it did to me that Perez was deliberately held up by his Red Bull team in the first and possibly his second pit stop? Uh, first one was the front jack getting stuck, which you could see. And the second one was a wheel gun failure on, I think, the left rear. Um, so on, on, unless unless the cause of the delay was engineered, I, I, no, I don't think so. Um, I, I, it's just just one of those things. Um, yeah, and, and later on when he, he was told not to fight, well, yeah, I don't think he was about to fight because he had nowhere near the, the pace of Verstappen because um, he just... You know, the, the, we're talking about the the tyres earlier on. I think that's just where he was. Yeah, and and ultimately, yeah, I think it made a great deal of difference. I must admit, it did cross my mind when you had the slow stop before you see the replay and see what was what was going on. But 
yeah, it ultimately didn't make a great deal of of difference. Scott, a question from Aldis Putnins, who says, question about Perez. Even at the start of the season, for me, there was little doubt who is number one in Red Bull, but now I'm hesitating to give a definite answer. What's your feeling about the situation in Red Bull at the moment? Are the team happy to prioritise Max regardless, or are they starting to play the let's see how it goes game? I think Max is still the the priority. Max is still the the, the guide that they will use for, for the World Championship. Perez is hanging in there resolutely he's putting together a very very good season his win in monaco was um was 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 exactly what he deserved unless of course you're Jos Verstappen in which case you'd have a different opinion uh, and he's just doing he's just doing a very good job but ultimately Verstappen has the the highest ceiling as a driver we've had a couple of races where Verstappen's specific limitations with the car are exposed a bit more and he's just been chasing the car too much at the start of the weekends because these street circuits they with, with the the shorter corners requiring requiring the sharper rotation that Verstappen is struggling to 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 do in a car that is fundamentally a bit understeery that plays to Perez's style a bit more naturally so at other tracks i think you find that Verstappen has enough other opportunities around the lap to make the time up or he's just been a bit more comfortable from from the get go. So he has had this advantage over Perez in general. We've just had a couple of races in a row where Perez has just been able to get the job done over one lap more than more than Verstappen, who's taken too long to get on top of it. But then we got into the race, and I, I don't think that was a manufactured uh, Verstappen win. I think it was a Verstappen win on 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 merit versus Perez. He was just a quicker driver on the day. So I think as that car gets better, I would expect Verstappen to stamp his authority on the team. A bit more, but he is still the number one driver. He is, he, you know, he's won more races. He'd be a decent chunk clear of uh, of Perez without his retirement in Australia, for example. So, um, yeah, that's still Verstappen's team. Um, it's just Perez is doing a very, very, very good job in supporting him. He's just playing a, a great wing man role. And the next question from Robert Greece, and I'll direct this one at myself. Uh, he's, uh, Robert says Gasly had a stellar race with his stock already rising as the most underrated young driver in F1. It's an interesting question. Is he still a young driver? He's 26. That's almost middle-aged in, in F1, uh, F1 terms, isn't it? But yeah, he's still a driver, I guess, on the up. I think, I think he's relatively well-respected and rated, but he'll always have that 2019 Red Bull struggle hanging over him and the question marks about whether his approach is exactly the right one for a top team and whether he can show his ability. But he's doing a very, very fine job in AlphaTauri and he's been consistently good in, in, in the midfield. So... Interesting to see what happens with him next, because he was saying now that Perez has been confirmed at Red Bull, which didn't come as a surprise to him, he's talking with Helmut Marco about what the future holds for him. Obviously, Marco and Red Bull would like him to stay at AlphaTauri. He's a great driver to have leading that team, but Gasly will be looking at opportunities elsewhere. And if he goes, will it be with Red Bull's blessing, kind of on an, an Albin-style thing where he's still got a Red Bull contract, or will he break free completely? There's various possibilities there. So interesting to see what happens. Not a huge number of better options are there, obviously, but but there's a few possibilities. Next question for you, Mark, from Yanis van der Waal. In the spirit of testing, could Mercedes drive with a two different chassis, meaning one with zero side pod and two with the original Barcelona spec, or is that not allowed? There's nothing in the. There's nothing saying you can't do that. Yeah, um, there's, no, there's no regulatory reason why you can't do that. Uh, I doubt very much whether they will do um, because it it sort of doubles up the work and doubles up the the problems in in some ways. So I think um, they'd prefer to remain focused on on one 
and uh, that one is the uh, the the you know the the the, the zero side podcast. So I don't see that happening, but in theory, it could happen. Yeah, there's always opportunities and options, but yeah, I'd be very surprised if they're doing that. They've moved beyond that sort of thing. Next question for you, Scott, is from Marcio Goncalves. In which way is the Vettel Leclerc 2019 situation comparable to the Hamilton Russell one now? Uh, very few. I do my best to try. I guess the the nearest is that it's a car that is a a, a car that is a a bit difficult to maybe get the maximum out of. Um. The 2019 Ferrari was a better Ferrari than, or was a better car, more competitive car than the 2022 Merc is at the moment. So even that isn't really a fair comparison. I mean, it, the main way the situation is comparable is that you do have highly rated young guy coming in against an established multiple world champion, but pretty much they're in the comparison ends because Hamilton isn't a, a the same in the same place that Vettel was in in 2019. He's not being ousted at Ferrari. He he he's not ha- clinging on to, to to power there. There's no evidence that Hamilton's you know driving worse, making loads of mistakes. Vettel was doing that in 2019. So I I, I don't think we're I don't I don't think it's fair to to really compare those two. And the final question, Mark, will aim at you from Leo Farrelly. This was. A question sent before the race. It's on the subject of Hamilton's experimental setups and the lack of comparative pace versus Russell over the season. It seems implausible that a team would consistently put one driver on experimental runs week after week without using the alternative driver to create a double-blind scenario to improve the data quality using one data source skews the sample to be biased. And any good research design would mitigate bias where possible, particularly by a team as historically operationally shrewd as Mercedes. Therefore, is it fair to say Hamilton, regardless of setup direction, is overall just doing a worse job at driving a bad car than Russell? There could be an element to that. You know, there's... um it's it's not uh, automatic that um, his record-breaking achievements make him drive the car faster than than you know it, it, you're judged on um, day by day, uh, lap by lap, and if there is something about this car that just isn't working for him, it's it's possible. Um, but in underlying pace, there's nothing starkly different about them um, this weekend. Definitely, George was ahead, and but Mercedes was very was making it um, very uh, clear that they they were on different specs. So you're not comparing like with like. When they have been like with like, I'd say it's about sixty forty in Hamilton's um, favor in terms of raw pace, not in results, because there's been a few skewing skewing of results. So. No, I don't. I don't see any underlying pattern there that one's quicker than the other. Um, and I think we probably won't get a proper reading on it until the car is truly competitive and can be perfectly balanced. And then they can start seeing. We we can start seeing who can exploit the last little ounce of a properly balanced, properly fast racing car. Then we can get a proper reading. Um, Having said all that, I'd be surprised if there was, if we do get to that scenario, I'd be surprised if there was much difference between them because I think Russell is of that caliber. Yeah, I think the real takeaway there is that Russell's done a great job on moving into Mercedes rather than 
Hamilton's dropped off a cliff or anything, so I don't, don't think he really has. But yeah, Russell's certainly doing a very, very good job. Really, really going to be interesting if that car does get sorted and up the front, how those two stack up. That's one we can certainly look forward to. Very quickly, Mark, Canada this weekend. Any expectations going in there? Um, we're going to see quite a similar pattern to the last um, the two races, I think. And uh, it for the, for much the same reasons. And I, one thing I, I, I was going to mention, and um, I just took a note on lap 50, so sort of 11, 11 before the end, before everybody sort of backs off and just starts bringing it home. And you, you get an actual better sense of the the difference. Um, Red Bull was 42 seconds ahead of Mercedes at that point. Um, 71, 71 seconds, so a minute and 11 seconds ahead of Alpha Tauri with Aston and um, Alpine not far behind. And... Uh, a minute and a half behind there was uh, behind Red Bull was McLaren. They they have massive gaps to the front. They even even by the standards of this year, and um, yeah, the, the, I think the, when when you get to bumpy street circuits, that, I do think you, you you amplify the advantage of a good car and the disadvantage of a bad one, and we'll probably see something similar in Montreal. Well, of course, we'll be turning our attention to that race very, very shortly. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen loads to read there, including Mark Hughes' race analysis. My driver ratings should be up by the time you listen to this. Do check out our other podcasts, including the Race IndyCar podcast, MotoGP, Formula E, Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories. And also check out our YouTube channel to search for the race. There's loads to watch there. And stay with us for everything you need to know from the Canadian Grand Prix. The Athletic.